Hello and welcome. You are listening to the Investor Lab and my name is Goose and you should probably already know that. But joining me today on the podcast was the very first time I've ever had a guest on for a second time. So if you are familiar with the podcast and I'm assuming you you should be or, or you will be, um, his name is Terry Ryder. Now he first appeared a couple of months back when we did uh, an episode on how to invest in economic in any economic climate. And um, for those of you who don't know who Terry Ryder is, he's been a specialist independent property researcher and a property expert for the last thirty five years. So he he is a a absolute treasure trove of uh, knowledge, insights, perspective, and in fact. You know, he form, forms part of my uh, personal tribe of, of mentors in this whole space. So there's a lot of value that he can bring to the table. And in this particular episode, uh, I am confident that you are going to be challenged and awakened and inspired uh, by everything that you hear. Now, the reason for that, we talk about the September cliff, we talk about, the, we talk about media, we talk about um, investing in a recession, we talk about stimulus, we talk about you know, the, the biggest issue that most investors have, which is in fact just actually not doing anything, you know, the fact that, that invest, investors are addicted to inaction, um, all of that kind of stuff. We talked about, you know, how investors should navigate this type of environment. Um, are we heading for a September cliff? What does that mean? Is it likely? What are the risks in this market? We talked about whether the Australian property market is going to flip upside down like the US and where we're going to have, whether we're going to have a systemic crash. We talk about how to proactively take action in this environment and avoid mistakes. We even talked about a whole bunch of locations and areas which are currently pumping. So if you have even a cursory interest in property or the economy or just even expanding the way you think about the world around you, I cannot recommend this episode enough. It was exciting. It was exhilarating. Both Terry and I were, were pumped up and, and delivered heaps of gold. Uh, there's probably a, a, a quotable truth bomb around about every 15 seconds through this. So strap yourself in. This is, a, this is an adrenaline-fueled roller coaster ride of, of truth that is going to deliver you to the destination you desire in your life. Uh, and that is my promise to you. And if I don't fulfill that, you just let me know, uh, and I will, I will, I will eat my shoe. <laughs> so, guys, I know you're going to love this. Now, if you are thinking about, if you listen to this ep- episode and you think, "Hell, I got to take action," and you will because you should, then the best bet for you to get some help from us to do that is to reach out. Just head to dashdot.com.au or dashdot.com.au forward slash discovery and you can book a call with me or the team and we can help you identify what the best next step is for you and whether or not we can help you to get there faster than the average investor and safer and get better returns and do all of the things that you need if you actually want to succeed in this game called life. So, I encourage you to go deep on this episode, listen back to it a couple of times, and please share it with your friends and family. This People need this episode. This isn't some flash in the pan, fluffy, um, you know, you know, verbiage for the sake of, of you know, talking. People need to hear this because what's actually happening in the world right now is not what you think. And we're going to unpack a lot of that right now and I know this is going to bring value to you and to other people. And, and my hope is that you can help me to spread this message because now is a, is a really amazing time in our collective uh, conscious and our collective future and our collective present. And I encourage you to participate in that and stop sitting on the sidelines. So let's jump into it. Um, as I said, if you want us to help you on this journey, head to dashdot.com.au. If you want to get free resources, guides, tools, and access to things like my book uh, and you know a whole range of other cool stuff, head to theinvestorlab.com.au. But without further ado, I'm going to get out of the way and let's get stuck into this. And I am so excited to see you on the inside. Hey guys, welcome back to the Investor Lab. Joining me today is um, the very. This is actually the very first time that we have ever had a repeat guest on the podcast. Now, for those who are familiar with the podcast, and if you listen to this, I'm probably assuming you've gone back and listened to a whole bunch of other episodes. You'll recognise this guest. His name's Terry Ryder. He featured in one of our most popular episodes ever. 
um, called Behind the Headlines, how to, how to Successfully Invest in Any Economic Climate, which um, we did back in about March, I think that was from memory, March, April. And that was absolutely dynamite. Now, given the way uh, the markets are and the world is and all of this kind of stuff, I thought what an awesome time to get Terry back on the show so we can talk about things that are happening right now. Terry, welcome back to the Investor Lab. Hello, Goose. It's a pleasure to be here. I love talking about real estate and I love having a conversation with you. So um, we're looking for something apparently exciting and robust today. Um, I think we can manage it. I think we can manage that too. I'm going to start. You're gonna, this is going to catch you by surprise, right? So make sure you get your, get your, get your socks pulled up. I'm going to start with a bold statement. Now, I thought about this this morning and I want to, I want to state this to you and this will serve as a platform to kick off the discussion. You ready? Okay. Investors are obsessed with fascinating about what could be. This manifests in both grandiose visions of the future but also a fear of failure along the way. It is safer for them to do nothing and hold on to a vision than it is for them to take action and realize that vision. As a result, investors have become addicted to the dopamine hits of negative reinforcement provided by an unregulated and irresponsible mass media juggernaut designed to inspire terror and anxiety into even the most stoic hearts. Like drowning sailors, investors cling to every disaster declaration they hear as validation that by doing nothing, they're doing the right thing. And this allows them to justify their inertia and live in a fantasy where idleness becomes a spiritual race car driving them towards a future of success and fulfillment. In fact, nothing could be further from the truth. Investors and everyone else would suffer less, achieve more by an order of several magnitudes simply by taking themselves to emotional rehab, overcoming their addiction to fear, taking a look at the facts and making pragmatic and empowered decisions. Okay. Right. That's very good and very true and um, beautifully written. I think maybe you should write a book, Goose. Um, <laughs> Thanks, Terry. What do, you think, what do you think of that, particularly in light of everything that's going on at the moment? I think it sums it up beautifully. There's a lot of investors out there who are what I call wannabe investors, but um, they're also procrastinators and there's always, at any point in time, there's a valid excuse that they can cling to to do nothing, basically. Um, you know, we've got to wait till the federal election is over to see what happens. We've got to wait to see what the federal, um, the Reserve Bank does with interest rates. There's always something in the present or the near future. That they've got to wait until it happens before they take action. Mm. And um, ultimately, people like that will never take action. And I, I talk to a lot of people like that, and I have a a comprehensive diary system where I have forward uh, reminders to myself and I go back to people and I follow up. But um, I've gotten to the habit now, people who have that kind of response, yeah, I want to do something, but first I've got to wait until X happens in the future. I just delete them now because I know that 99% of them will be just time wasters. They will never take action if that's their mentality. Yeah. I, I, I couldn't agree more. There's, um, I couldn't agree more. There's, there's kind of like, there's this vision that I think most, there's a, there's a, there's a pandemic that isn't the coronavirus pandemic. There's a pandemic pandemic in investors in Australia of, of gross inaction. Now I am not by any means saying just go out there and haphazardly start throwing your money around and making mistakes. Not at all. But I think that a lot of people have this vision of what they could do with property and what they want to achieve with property and uh, oh, they want to build a portfolio. But I mean, the stats, the stats don't lie. Only 8.7% of, of the population have ever invested in any property. And, you know, all of the people that invest in property, 90, 93% don't even get past two. So I think that there's a, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that investors need to stop, wa- stop watching what's in the news getting scared and start taking action. Otherwise, they're never going to break through that glass ceiling and actually get what they want. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I, th- I think it's the key message. It's the key takeout. We're, we're only just at the beginning of the conversation, but that's probably going to be the key take-home message for anyone that's uh, watching and listening, that um, ultimately you have to take action and you've just got to stop allowing um, what's in the media, for example, to get into your head and stop you from doing what you plan to do. Um, yeah. have, a, have a goal, establish a, a strategy for getting there and start putting into action carefully, of course, with research. Rece- everything you do should be research-based, but take action. 
Yeah, exactly. And I think research is really the most important part because emotion is what's actually holding everyone back. All these investors like to talk about how they're not emotional and everything like that, yet they're making emotional decisions to not act based on what's, what we're seeing in the media. Now, let's start getting into the meat of the conversation today. Now, what we're going to be talking about today is largely about this impending doom that we keep hearing about, this September cliff. Now, the reason I actually wanted to get you on to talk about this episode, I was actually going to do this episode with Gabby, my partner. But I thought that you actually have a, a unique perspective you had to bring to it as well. So I thought, look, what a timely way to, to get you back in back into the show to have this conversation. Before we go to the September cliff that everyone's so scared about, though, why don't we take a little look back at what happened over the last quarter? We don't need to spend too much time there, but the, this kind of lends to my, my statement at the start. If we go back to March, we were being told that property markets were going to crash by 30%. We were told that... Uh, unemployment rates were going to reach 15%. You know, we were told that, you know, come June, the world was going to end then. And so what I saw is that a lot of people were like, no, 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 we've got to, we've got to wait. And in fact, I actually had people who came to me and said, we want to buy a property. Oh, wait, actually, we're just going to wait until one of them actually set a specific date. I think he said it was like, we need to wait until June 17th. And I was like, what's going on on June 17th that's going to change? The reality is, though, we haven't really seen that those, those that level of uh, doomsday prediction come to light, have we? Not remotely, um, and and that's usually the case. I mean, I, I keep one of the many things I keep files on is the predictions that people make, and I've got files going back to the the start of the century. Um, economist, media, the people I call the usual suspects. Um, very often, well, it's all about clickbait headlines. It's all about achieving publicity for themselves. And they know that if they say something sensationally negative about the housing market, that's going to guarantee them a ticket to free publicity. So they do. And it's very seldom, if ever, proven to be correct. So going back to February, March, we had predictions that property values are going to drop 20%, 30%, some said 40%. And uh, of course, here we are now, um, heading towards the end of July, and none of it has happened. We've seen very, very minor, according to some sources, minor reduction in prices in a small number of places. But in actual fact, in most locations in Australia, we've actually seen uh, property values holding their line or in some cases actually small rises. So those predictions haven't come to pass, um, and um, they were never going to. I'd, you know, just looking at the historical evidence, for example, what has happened with Australian property prices in other financial crises, we haven't ever had one quite like this, but we have had um, a recession in the early 90s when unemployment went above 10% for a prolonged period. We've had the global financial crisis, at which time people were predicting 40% drops in property values. It didn't happen. Property values actually rose in the, in the next 12 months quite strongly in Australia. So looking at the historical evidence, I believe it was never going to happen that way, but um, economists and the usual suspects do like to put out those doom days prediction. It's great for attracting publicity to themselves, but it's very poor at actually informing consumers, which ultimately should be their objective. Totally. So you hit on a couple of really interesting points there. So the recession in the 90s, what happened to property prices then? Well, there was in some locations a minor contraction, but over the next, say, two to three years, property prices rose. But at the time, of course, there was a lot of doomsday forecasts. Unemployment did go to 10 11%, and it was stuck there for quite a period because Australia actually was in a technical recession. But um, over, say, the three years after the start of that recession, in every major city of Australia, property prices actually rose. And it was real estate, residential real estate, that led Australia out of that recession. And I think we're actually seeing similar things happening right now. I, I, I agree. I think there's actually some some very unique differences between this recession and the last one, and not, not least of which because of the, the causation of it. So uh, what, I, what I noted was that um, in the – so I've been doing a bit of research on all of this stuff as well. What I noted that was that in the 90s, yes, some, some cities did minorly contract, such as Melbourne was a really a, a notable one that contracted through the, through the 90s uh, as a result of the recession. But other cities like Brisbane – uh, significantly uh, increased in value over that same period of time. So there was diametrically opposed results based on uh, yeah. independent independent cities. But also, I couldn't I couldn't define a clear um, a clear case of 
large scale, broad acre government stimulus to drag the country out of the recession. It was kind of like it was allowed to just go into recession and naturally grow back out of it. Yeah, yeah. Was that, was that was the case? I think so. Um, we we saw quite a lot of government inertia back then, and we've seen very different things happening in more recent financial crises, the global financial crisis. Um, the federal government was very, very proactive in um, helping Australia to avoid recession, which a lot of countries in the world experienced at that time by by spending big. And we're seeing a very similar approach by the current federal government that it's not going to allow the economy to crash and, and high levels of unemployment. It's going to um, pump stimulus into the economy. We've seen lots of evidence of that already. And there's a, a big uh, financial statement out today, which is going to see what more they plan to do. Also, the Reserve Bank's been very proactive in taking the action that it can to support the economy. And... Um, there's been uh, analysis from a couple of the, the major world organisations like the, like OPEC and the International Monetary Fund, and they've both analysed what's going on in the world and concluded that Australia's in the top two or three economies in the world in terms of its strength and its ability to withstand the negative forces of the pandemic and to come out the other side uh, strongly economically. Yeah, so, totally. So, okay, so we touched on the recession in the 90s because that's the last technical recession we had. GFC did not result in a recession. So in the 90s, there was basically no real government stimulus. The government said, we have to go into a recession. We need to reset, we need to reset the body clock, so to speak, and we're going to let ourselves naturally grow out of it. And that happened. And, and, and over that period and in the subsequent years after that recessionary period, property prices continued to go up. And even during that period, some cities continued to accelerate and actually outperform um, national averages and all of that kind of stuff. It all basically, in, to a large degree, life went on. Because like every, yeah. like every moment in time, right now, there are some cities like Sydney and Melbourne, which are experiencing some contractions in, in a broad sense. Uh, and then there are some cities which are gaining value. So you, you always have this this um, you know non-linear uh, growth growth you know, comparables happening at all times in all in every market, whether it's an up or a down or a strong market or not. So that is what played out in the '90s when we had a had a technical recession. And um, worth noting there, you mentioned a couple of times that unemployment rates were above ten percent. Right now, interestingly, I, I was reading uh, one of your favourite uh, media outlets, the a the AFR. And I was actually reading this this amazing headline. It was like it was like unemployment skyrocketed and boom, like doom, doom. And I was like, oh wow, wow, well, got my attention, clickbait. And I was like, oh, what's happened? And don't get me wrong. What I say is is not to downplay the scenario. Two hundred and ten thousand um, people uh, new uh, newly registered unemployed, or, or you know, they're adding that to the tally. However, they're doing that. But that was a transition from seven point one percent to seven point four percent. You know, we're not yeah. talking like we're not we haven't. We're not tipping over that that threshold. Then, if we take a little step forward in time, right? So, 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 just to finish on that, we survived that and thrived through it. And hey, look, like life, life didn't just go on, but we're we're all abundantly better off for it. And I can guarantee you, I don't think there's a single investor out there who, if they could go back in time, would not have wanted to buy a property in 1992 or 1993. I, I, I cannot imagine a scenario where an investor would say no to that opportunity right now, right? Yeah. Now. Step forward in time to the recession that we didn't have, and Australia was, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, the only country in the entire world to avoid a recession during the global financial crisis through to fiscal policy and money management. Is that right from your memory? Yeah. Well, it's one of the few that avoided a recession. Uh, it was predicted, but because of proactive measures at uh, federal government level, it managed to uh, stay strong and um, and real estate responded very positively to that at that time. Yep. So here's the thing, and this is, a, this is the thing that I think most people are missing. So in the global financial crisis, we avoided a recession. You know, everyone thought the world was going to end, but we avoided a recession. And we spent the, the government stimulus at that time that they spent, they pumped money into the machine to the tune of $52 billion, Okay. So $52 billion was enough to save us from a recession when the rest of the world went to, went to hell in a handbasket. And everyone congratulated Australia on their success and how lucky we are and how wonderful life is over here and, and how great that is. And that's great. That's cool. So let's put those numbers in comparison. And then I want to talk about what's going on now. 
So 52 billion for the global financial crisis. For comparison, the bushfire recovery uh, stimulus for the 2020 bushfires is about 2 billion. So 52 billion for GFC, 2 billion for the bushfire relief. Um, and I think it was like, and it steps down from there. I think it was 3.3 billion actually, actually for the North Queensland flood recovery. Okay, so pretty like massive differences. Right now, the government has already, regardless of what they announced today, right now what they've already announced is stimulus to get us through this period of time is I think $213 billion. So that's, 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 four, that's over four times the amount of stimulus that we received during the global financial crisis, which is pretty, I don't think people can understand that, that order of magnitude. It's huge. No. It's tremendous. Those, those numbers start to become mind-numbing and gobsmacking and almost meaningless uh, for the average punter. They, um, they're, they're huge numbers um, and made necessary by the, the extent of what's happening in the world and its impact on Australia. But um, it's the, the factor that's um, been forgotten by the what I call Australia's gaggle of chattering economists who like to have um, the doomsday scenarios before us They've forgotten about that in um, talking about the September clip that we're, we're going to ultimately be, be getting to in this discussion. Um, yeah. yeah. So well, let's get into it now. What is this September cliff? I mean, let me just recap. So the 90s recession, pretty much all good. You know, life was rough, but, but you know, historically we're all good. GFC, we pumped $52 billion into the economy and we didn't just survive, we thrived. Uh, coronavirus, we're pumping over $200 billion into the economy. You know why is everyone? What is what is this September cliff that 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 media pundits keep wheelbarrowing out at every opportunity they get? And why do they say it's going to happen? Well, it's a piece of crap that that they've constructed to um, to concoct um, sensationally negative headlines and to attract attention to themselves in the in terms of the economists who have subscribed to that theory. And basically, what they were saying is that at the end of September, the federal government and the major banks are going to switch off all support for the nation, and everything is just going to collapse. I mean, it was never going to happen. I mean, they come up with the September 30 date because when the federal government announced JobKeeper and Job Seeker, the initial announcement was to last until the end of September. And the banks also at that time said, we're going to allow mortgage holidays for people who apply for them who are, who are struggling because maybe they lost their jobs as a result of the pandemic. And initially, we're, we're projecting that forward to the end of September. So there was no provision made that, that the federal government and the major banks would review the situation where we got a, bit, a little bit closer to that deadline and then decided what, what more they were going to do. They were always going to do that. And, of course, um, we've now seen announcements both from the major banks and from the federal government, which proves that, yes, they're going to extend JobKeeper and JobSeeker, more targeted, but it's going to extend at least until... March 2021. The banks have also announced that they're going to have an extension of the mortgage holidays for those that need it. Now, as far as I'm concerned, that was always going to happen and we were never going to have the September cliff. But basically, it was based on the notion that everything, all the support was going to be switched off in uh, at the end of September and it was going to be an economic and real estate disaster. And I just thought it was just absolute rubbish and it's already been proven to be rubbish, and we're we're still uh, in July, and um, we, I think we we can stop talking about the September cliff. It's just um, been rendered redundant by uh, the announcements that have been made at um, a federal government and and also by the uh, the major banks. You know what I find most fascinating about these kind of predictions that you see in the media, you know that the world's going to end on a specific date in the future. What they're essentially doing is, is analogous to a situation where you go, okay, I am currently eating dinner, um, but at, at, in, in the next 10 minutes, I'm going to finish eating dinner. And on the basis of the fact that that meal will be ended, if I do not, for the foreseeable future, if I do not eat ever again, I'm going to starve to death and die. Whereas the reality is, you know, we live in a world where we will respond and adapt to the environmental challenges that we face. If you just finish a meal, that doesn't mean that you're never going to eat again. It means that when you need to, when the time is right, you will find the resources that require you to continue sustenance and, and to continue to progress. And it's this, it's this kind of idea that they just draw, they put a stake in the stand, stand, sand and say, right now, 
if everything is exactly like this for another X period of time, we're stuffed. But the reality is yeah. it's never, it's never going to stay that way. I've never, uh, I, I, you know, you've got a couple of years on me, so maybe there's something I don't know, but I have never experienced a day or a moment in my life, even a, even a single minute where life has stayed the same. Like, so I, I yeah. find it very, I find it very hard to, to, to draw that, just put these stakes in the sand and go in six months, this is what's going to happen based on accident, yeah. exactly everything that's happening right now. And in terms of the September cliff, I don't think many of the people making those doomsday predictions actually believe what they're saying. And media, um, well, they just don't care. I mean, it's, it's today's headline. It's, it's the headline for right now, today. Um, tomorrow they'll forget they even wrote that headline. And certainly at the end of September, they're not going to apologise to Australia for all the alarm and fear they caused back in you know, March and April by making these predictions, which scared a lot of people uh, unnecessarily. Um, they will have forgotten they even did it and said it. Um, but quite, quite beyond the announcements we've now heard from the federal government and from the major banks, the other things they overlooked in per- perpetuating this theory of a September cliff was that the economy was reopening and has continued to reopen, notwithstanding what's happened in Melbourne, and people are going back to work. And there's also the stimulus spending that hasn't been taken into account because what we're seeing at a federal uh, and state government level, and also to some extent at a, a local council level, is a fast tracking of infrastructure spending. They're bringing forward everything that's pretty much shovel ready and fast tracking it to implement the the plans for for new infrastructure that were already on the books, but perhaps were were going to happen next year. A lot of it's been fast tracked to generate economic activity and jobs. So that's the other big factor that's going to um, mitigate against the so-called September cliff. Okay, so I mean, I agree with you, and I, quite frankly, I'm, 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 I am both angry at uh, the levels at which the media have negatively influenced the ability for people to advance their levels of prosperity. Because I know for a fact, I know for a fact that we've had had clients who at the start of April said, look, I think I just need to stop. I don't know what's happening. And they're just, they're, they're, as a result, they're not progressing their, their personal wealth journey and their levels of prosperity. I'm angry at the media for doing that. And I'm also simultaneously like, like beside myself with excitement about what the, this next like six, 12, 18 months, 36 months, like five years, 10 years, I'm, I'm looking, I'm looking into, I'm looking at the data and I'm going, this is, this is tremendous. This is like yeah. what's happening right now is, is when you put a kink in a hose and you turn the tap on, turn the tap up full at the same time. There's a lot of pressure building up. You know, there's a lot of equity mm. in the system which is gonna like gonna start <laughs> flowing through in a pretty heavy gush when it when it starts to starts to happen. So, okay, I agree with you though. But is there any risk? Right? Is there any risk? And let's try and be objective, objective here. Is there any risk that the housing market is actually going to flip upside down like, like the US? Is there any risk that we're going to have a complete credit collapse or anything like that? I mean, we can say, yeah, yeah, life's good and, you know, you know best, best time to buy a property was, you know, six months ago or 10 years ago or today or whatever. We can say all that kind of stuff. But what are the, what are the actual risks? What are the downsides? What are the chances that we're going to flip upside down and, and have a negative market? I think they're they're remote. The, um, there's always risk in real estate investment. Um, you, you can't say there's no risk. You can never say that. But I think the ris- risks are very small. Um, look, if property prices were going to collapse, they would have done so by now. You know, we've actually worked through the, the worst impacts of the pandemic. Um, Melbourne has, has had a relapse for local reasons, but the rest of the country seems to have the thing under control. And... Um, yeah, basically, if it was going to happen, it would have happened by now. We would have seen some evidence of it, but we have seen none. Um, the other thing I'd like to point to in terms of what's happened over the last quarter or so relative to what the Dyer Media predictions were, um, an important thing to look at is what happened with vacancy rates. The media, particularly the financial review that you mentioned earlier, has highlighted only the negative results with vacancy rates, and that's the CBDs of um, Sydney and Melbourne primarily, mm. also Brisbane where for obvious reasons, 
vacancies have blown out. But actually around the country, vacancies have dropped. In June, vacancies significantly dropped in all capital cities in Australia, which is a remarkable result. Uh, but the, the primary source of that information, SQM Research, which publishes a monthly report, they showed there was a minor increase in vacancies over um, April and May, but then they came down again in June. So right now we have a situation where Sydney is the only capital city with a vacancy rate above 3%. Overall, Sydney CBD is a high vacancy, but overall Sydney um, is about 3.5%, and it's the only capital city that's above 3%. Five of the capital cities are, are below 1.5%, which means – and then you've got regional Australia, and most parts of regional Australia have very tight vacancies right now. So – the overall situation across Australia is very tight vacancies. Rent's actually rising in many markets across Australia. But because most of our media comes out of Sydney and Melbourne and they're obsessed with themselves, we're hearing that rents are falling and vacancies are rising. Well, outside of Sydney and Melbourne, that's actually not happening. And we've got actually very strong markets with an undersupply of rental properties strong demand from buyers. Um, there's some thriving markets out there. And I think um, one of the key takeaways for people today, the people who can get beyond the, the impulse to procrastinate, is that this is a time of opportunity. I want people to take that word home with them and keep it in their heads, opportunity. And you've alluded to it yourself, how excited you are about what's to come. It's an incredible opportunity because most people are herd animals. Most people won't act until they read there's a boom on. Then they'll take action, but they will have missed the best time to buy. There's some great opportunities to buy well out there in locations that are going to provide great future growth and good rental returns, but you've got to act now to take advantage of those opportunities. And 90% of people won't because they're herd animals. Yeah, I couldn't agree more because if you even if you even if you look back to um May or around about this time last year, the election last year, there was a lot of people that were procrastinating before the election and they yeah. didn't. It was like it was like no one was buying. Everyone was like, oh my God, what's gonna happen in the election? And then but everyone said, Oh, as soon as as soon as the election result is announced, I'm gonna buy. And they did. But then what happens is that all of a sudden everyone's rushing to the same, everyone's rushing to the same dinner plate. And therefore no one gets no one gets the feast. And so yeah. I yeah, I, and even it's interesting as well. You spoke about vacancy rates there, which is a really, really awesome, awesome, awesome point uh, to touch on. Because as you said, you know, vacancy rates in Sydney are down uh, from from May to June, and Melbourne uh, Melbourne is actually down from May to June as well, right? So, and nationally, we're down. Vacancy rates are down. But if we take a sort of a longer term view and look back twelve months as well. If we look nationally over the last 12 months, because everyone can kind of say, oh, yeah, but maybe things are like up and down and it's really volatile right now. So maybe we, that's what's happening. So let's take a look back 12 months ago. If you look 12 months ago, vacancy rates are still down nationally. So vacancy yeah. rates are down from 2.3% at the same time last year down to 2.2% nationally, right? So, okay, hang on a second. So what you're saying is nationally we're better off right now in, to that degree, Yes. And as uh, nationally, though Sydney and Melbourne are still up on where they were last year significantly, they're the only um, they're the only they're the only capitals. Oh, Hobart's up slightly on it was on what it was last year as well. But by and large, if you take out those two, if you take out the two capitals, the national average, if you exclude Sydney and Sydney and Melbourne, the national average vacancy rate has dropped from one point nine six percent last year, same time last year, to one point four five percent this year, same time this year. Yeah which is in an incredibly tight rental market. And this uh, speaks to another very important people for people to take home from this discussion, and that is you've got to differentiate. You've got to understand that we don't have a single market in Australia because the economists, the people who are making all the doomsday predictions, they keep talking about the Australian property market and what's happening with Australian property prices as if it's one great big homogenous market. And, of course, it's not. We have thousands of different markets. And um, you've got to understand that while... There's some struggle, there's evidence of struggle in some of the Sydney and Melbourne markets. There's um, 16 million Australians who don't live in Sydney and Melbourne out there and they're looking at what's in the media saying, what the hell are they talking about? That's not happening in my backyard. And the reality is that uh, outside of the two biggest cities, there are a lot of really strong markets. Adelaide's a great example. I mean, Adelaide's yeah. got ultra-low vacancies, really um, – I think it's significant that the cities that have got on top of the pandemic and handled it best and now have no cases and no concerns like um, Adelaide's one of them, their markets 
are very, very strong. Uh, you go to Adelaide and, and try to buy a property in anywhere in Adelaide right now, and you know this as a buyer's agent, Goose, it's very competitive. You're going to have to act very quickly to secure a good property in Adelaide right now because there are yeah. a lot of investors, a lot of home buyers. It's very competitive. Vacancies are really low. There's great opportunities there. But um, I, I hear this from um, property professionals of all types who are active in Adelaide. It's just really tough market to buy a good property in because it's so competitive. It's a, it's, it's a, I got to say, it's a bit of a madhouse here at the moment. It is an absolute, yeah. it's a madhouse here at the moment. And um, look, we, we are buying in Adelaide at the moment uh, amongst other places and it's just crazy. And to see the level of activity, the level of demand, the, the, the rents are skyrocketing, the vacancy rates are plummeting. I mean, how many areas? How many areas in the country have got zero percent vacancy rates? Not that, not that many. Um, and I could probably—they're probably all clustered around Adelaide <laughs> right now. Yeah. And but it, you know, if, if you go through all the postcodes of Adelaide, it's very difficult to find a postcode that has a vacancy above two percent. A lot of them are below one percent. It's, and I mean, I bought there myself um, not so long ago. I, you know, put my money where my mouth is. Um, I really believe in the future of Adelaide for all sorts of reasons. When my new rental property was was put up available for rent and they had a, an open house. There were like 12 or 13 parties competing for it were there. And the rental we actually achieved was way higher than we actually projected in our initial figures. And um, we've got a very good tenant who keeps paying their rent 10 weeks in advance. So, I mean, talk about a great investment. Um, it's awesome. I'm, just, I'm delighted with that, at, that outcome. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, it's, it's a case of seeing an opportunity and taking it rather than doing what 90% of people do, the herd animals, which is, as we said at the beginning, procrastinating. Okay, so let's – let's. I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. And, and just for everyone listening, Adelaide's not the only market in the country that uh, is experiencing these kind of conditions. It's, a, it's, it's great, but there's, like, so many other places. Like, we're seeing yeah. – there's, there's – uh, five key areas that we're buying in for our clients. Uh, Adelaide broadly is one of them. We have a couple of pockets there that we're buying in. Um, in, in like the, uh, the range of vacancy rates that we are buying in the areas we're buying range from 0% genuinely to 1.1%. And, that's in, and that's, in four, that's in four different states. You know, so this is not isolated to just that pocket, but I think that there is a big, there is a big message there that there are markets that are growing and tightening and are more desirable than ever before, and have a huge amount of uh, future growth potential that exists right now. And the people that the people that who who didn't take action in March, didn't take action in April, and then thought, oh, I better wait till after September, and they're constantly waiting for this. Um, this mythological promised land that's going to happen where all of a sudden the gates are going to open, every property is going to only be, be valued at 50% what it's really worth and they're, and they're all going to be able to retire in the next two years if they just wait, just wait a little longer and just wait a little longer. I think it's, I think it's madness. That being said, that being said, how like it's, we're obviously both pretty excited about the scenario, but let's try and is, we need to sort of try and peel this back a little bit because it sounds like we're just – Overly bullish about the market. What where where what should people be looking out for? Because it's not good. It's not good everywhere, right? It's not, and and that's always the case. At any point in time, you'll have markets in Australia that are, are booming. Some that are chugging along okay. Some are stagnating. Some falling a little, and some falling a lot. It's the case right now. But uh, I think. Um, the overwhelming message is that there are a lot of thriving markets out there which provide um, good opportunities. But I think what people need to do is understand what some of the um, the dominant trends are right now um, because there has been changes, um, some of them because of COVID-19. Some are trends that are already underway that have been exacerbated by COVID-19. Like what? Um, well, one of the ones that really stands out for me, and I know you're aware of it, is what I call the exodus to lifestyle. Now, this was already underway, and it's a, an outcome of in technology and improved transport links. I mean, people increasingly are, are working from home. They're working remotely. So that means that people don't necessarily need to be in the big, expensive, congested city anymore. They can actually move to the fringes of the major cities or they can move outside of the metropolitan area to a hill change area or a sea change area. Now, we've seen that underway. 
regional Victoria is a great example of it. It's been, and as far as I'm concerned, regional Victoria has been the strongest market in the country for the last, say, two to three years, and it's still very strong. COVID-19, which forced people to go into lockdown and work from home whether they wanted to or not, has opened the eyes of not only those people but their employers that this can actually work. And for the employers, it means, well, if we've got, say, half our workforce effectively and efficiently working from home, we only need half the amount of office space. We can cut, massively cut our business costs. So COVID-19 has enhanced something that was already underway. And so we have some of these regional markets like the Ballarats and the Bendigos and the Geelongs and the Latrobe Valley, towns like Tarelgan, actually, you know, really strong competitive markets right now because COVID-19 has enhanced the trend that was already underway. And we're seeing this happening also in New South Wales. We're seeing it happening in Queensland with markets like the Sunshine Coast. So that's a very important trend to keep in mind. It was already strong. It's just become stronger. And I think it's going to be strong life long term because if people can leave the big city, sell their home, buy for half the price in, say, Ballarat and have money left over and have this relaxed lifestyle um, where they're not spending three hours a day commuting and um, their lifestyle is also a lot more affordable, well, it's, it's a great move, for not for everybody, but for a lot of people that's a fantastic move. So we're going to see um, ongoing strong demand in those markets, say one to two hours from the capital city. That's a really important trend. So Some yeah. others... Totally. We'll touch on a couple of others as well whilst we've got a little bit of time. Um, but I want to touch on that one because that's super, super important. It's what I call geographic arbitrage, where people can get have the have the have they can still earn the same money, but they can reduce their their overheads and increase their financial their affluence and live a better life. This is why you see a lot of digital nomads go and live in places like Bali, except rather than escaping to some foreign country, we can actually do it in our own backyard, which is super exciting. And that's what's driving a lot of this growth. Because if you think about why people want to invest in property, I'm yet to find many, uh, maybe a couple of investors that are just like really passionate about houses. They just love them, right? They're just like, I love houses. Most people don't care about the house. They care about what it can do. You know, and really the reason that people want to invest in any asset class and specifically real estate is because they want to achieve some degree of autonomy, choice, freedom, uh, fulfillment, affluence, satisfaction, uh, all of that kind of stuff. It, now, if you suddenly have, you know, doubled the amount of money in the bank because you've sold down a property you've got and you've moved to a regional area, you bought something that's half the price and your cost of living is lower and you're earning the same amount of money, doesn't that fast track your, 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 fast track your ability to get to that point? And, and especially considering if you consider it a, uh, uh, an idea that I call minimum viable life, you know, a lot of people say, oh, yeah, I want financial freedom. I want like $250,000 a year and whatever. And yeah, yeah, cool, cool, cool. That's great. Have a vision. Um, but a minimum viable life is a really powerful concept to consider. Minimum viable life says, what would it actually take for me to be free? What would it actually take for me to have ultimate choice, to actually decide how I want to spend my day? For a lot of people, that's actually right low, really low. Like my 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 MVL is a, is a, is actually around about thirty two thousand dollars. It's really low, which is really yeah. cool because it means that you don't have to like all of a sudden that gateway to freedom that people so push off into the distance like this magical endpoint, and that's how they justify the idolatry of this vision that somewhere in the distance and almost impossible to achieve, and the reason that they don't take action anyway is actually super achievable if you just think a little differently. Yeah, and. And it's not necessarily about uh, retiring early. For some people, they want to retire early. I think these must be people who absolutely hate their jobs. I mean, I've got no concept of ever retiring. And some of my heroes are people who um, don't need to go to work because they're fantastically wealthy and fantastically successful. But in their 80s and 90s, they're still going to work. I think of people like David Attenborough, for example, mm. and Warren Buffett. I mean, he could, couldn't hope to spend all the money he's made. He's in his mid-80s. He goes to work every day because he loves what he does. But I, I read once um, in a column by Bernard Salt, I'm sure you're familiar with Bernard, he writes yep. a column in the Australian, he's Australia's pr probably most renowned and entertaining demographer. And he said at one point that the, the quintessential Australian lifestyle dream is being self-employed, living in a, a beautiful lifestyle location. And when I read that, I thought, hey, 
I'm living the quintessential Australian dream. I'm already doing that. I live in a hill change town. I never want to live anywhere else. Um, I'm self-employed. I've got a five-second commute, which is how long it takes me to work from my residential building to my office building on my acreage property. Um, I'm living the dream already. Uh, I'm not retired. I don't want to retire, but I'm just doing what I want to do, where I want to do it. And with this, um, this trend we're talking about, more and more people can achieve that. They can achieve this affordable and more relaxed lifestyle, working from home. Um, yeah, they, they can actually change it and achieve it at the age of 25 or 30 if they want to. It's not about retiring. It's about um, getting the lifestyle you want now. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more, which is actually why I think there's a there's a broken I, I ideology with with real estate that what I call the old way uh, versus the new way. And the old way is basically try and buy five properties and put them on a 30-year P&I uh, loan and, and hopefully pay them down and then you get to the end of it and hallelujah, you reach the promised land when you're about 60. And in the meantime, you know, you're going to be stuck in the rat race and stuck on a hamster wheel. The reality is if you just think a little differently and uh, you're a little bit more pragmatic in the types of properties you buy and how you go about doing it and you strategically build the right portfolio with it with a clear destination in mind, you can do that in you can do that in a very short period of time. You can do that in sort of five to ten years if you understand exactly what your goal is and what you need to do to get there. So Yeah. Um tell me then, what are a couple of other drivers? Look, um, I think one that's very significant, and then we have to unpack what does this mean is that first-time buyers are very dominant. You know, there's never been a better time for a first-time buyer to be in the market, assuming that you've got a secure job because interest rates have never been lower and the level of government assistance at a federal and state level is has never been higher. So it's fantastic. And first-time buyers are out there in force right now. They're very dominant. So what investors need to think about is what's that going to mean for the market? Where are they active? Well, they're most likely to be active on the fringes of our major cities and increasingly in these regional areas that are within one to two hours of the capital city. So again, it's, it's pushing us in similar directions, that trend as well. And they've been boosted further by the uh, the job build, uh, sorry, the home builder uh, $25,000 grant, which means a lot of first home buyers are out there trying to get their footprint on a block of land and build a new home because in some states, if you put together all the incentives from federal and state governments, you can get 50 or 60 grand in your pocket. Um, that's a pretty good head start to get your first home. So it's driving demand in those, um, those more affordable areas of the major cities and in those regional markets. So that's something for people to be aware of. And probably the third trend that stands out for me, and I mentioned it earlier, the capital cities that are without the virus, that have got on top of it very quickly, like um, Perth, Adelaide and Brisbane, those markets are really starting to pump. I mean, Adelaide's continued to pump. Perth is showing more and more evidence that it's coming back strongly now. And Brisbane, I think, is, is really starting to pump as well. And it's, I don't think it's a coincidence that these are the locations that have pretty much got on top of the whole virus thing, their economies are reopening, people are confident and they're out there doing things. Um, those are the places that people should be thinking about as, in, as investors. Yeah, I think Perth's a really interesting story. I think like everyone's been waiting for Brisbane to pop for a very long time and I think a lot of people are actually starting to question why. Why hasn't why hasn't Brisbane boomed? What are well, your thoughts on that? I'll tell you what's been missing. The reason why Melbourne and, and Sydney did and Brisbane didn't it's because of the infrastructure spend. I think that's a key factor. Uh, both Melbourne and Sydney have been spending massively tens of billions of dollars on new roads, tunnels, rail links, hospitals, schools, and Brisbane hasn't spent zip for the last five or six years. But now it's changing. There's big, big projects underway in Brisbane now. There's the Cross River Rail. There's the Queen's Wharf project, which is $3.5 billion. It's the uh, the new airport runway, which has just been opened, and there's a whole lot more, and that's the game changer for Brisbane, plus um, virus under control at the moment at least, and the affordability comparison is really good. And now we're seeing the population figures very much favouring Brisbane and southeast Queensland. In terms of interstate migration, it's the national leader. Uh, Sydney's losing population um, in terms of interstate uh, migration, you know, tens of thousands of people leaving Sydney and they're going to places like Brisbane because it's more affordable. It's that factor again, exodus to an affordable lifestyle. So what's going to happen with Sydney then? Is it going to turn into a ghost town? Well, 
it's going to have some problems short term because its population growth comes primarily from overseas migrants and that that tap's been turned off for now and our international borders remain closed and are likely to for a while so brisbane uh sorry sydney with higher vacancies than everywhere else and um that particular impetus are removed it's going to struggle in some areas but there also there's a lot of wealth in sydney i mean last weekend there was a property sold at Vaucluse for 5.7 million, which was two or 300,000 above reserve. You know, those sorts of sales are still happening in Sydney because there's a lot of wealth there. And that will uh, insulate it to a certain degree, but there will be some struggle, I think, in Sydney markets, particularly the apartment ones, you know, the Parramatta's, the CBD inner city areas where there's lots of high rise apartments and high vacancies, they're going to struggle for a while. Mm. Yeah, got it. Well, mate. What, um, but for just to just to try and wrap this up. So we've talked about uh, we talked about basically investors trying to get out, get out of their own way. We've talked about government stimulus. We've talked a bit about the September cliff. What we and we've talked about sort of what, where the markets are pumping and what to look for in the current environment. What other um, kind of gems? What do you think we've missed that we could just just bomb onto the listeners right now to leave them with some real gold before we wrap it up? Oh look, um, I just want to come back to what we talked about earlier. The key word is opportunity. I think that's the word. People should write it and put it on the wall, um, print it out, make posters, put it on your wall. Opportunity, opportunity. For those who take action, um, the people who detach from the herd and run in the opposite direction are always the people who succeed with any endeavour anywhere in the world. Um, Warren Buffett, that's his philosophy. You do the opposite of what everyone's doing. You buy when others are selling, you sell when others are buying. Um, you also take a long-term view, um, but it's about not being a herd animal. It's detaching. Because most people would rather be part of a herd that's stampeding towards a cliff than detach from the herd and run in the opposite direction towards safety or prosperity. Um, be the opposite of a herd animal. See the opportunities and take action. Awesome. That's great. And I'll wrap that up with a quote, my favourite quote from Mark Twain. Uh, his is a quote. He said, "Whenever you, whenever you find yourself on the side of the majority, it's time to pause and reflect." And I think that's very apt for right now. Yeah. Can can, can I leave you with a quote as well? I've, I've got it. I printed okay. it out. I'm going to going to get this put in the frame, and and put on my wall because I, I love it. It's from C.S. Lewis, the writer, and it says, and it's got a lovely image. Um, I'll hold it up for you so you can see it. Nice. But it says you can't go back and change the beginning, but you can start where you are and change the ending. And I think that's a wonderful quote that people can can make uh, part of their lives and really put into action. Right, that's that's awesome. That's that's gold. That's dynamite. Well, mate, I've really enjoyed this. I've really enjoyed this uh, conversation, as I enjoy all of our conversations. And there's a lot of dynamite in here. I think it's really going to benefit people. So. Um, let's wrap it up and thanks so much for everything that you do and thanks for being a, thanks for being a part of this and, and helping to build our community. Yeah, look, it's always a pleasure talking to you, Goose, and I love talking about real estate, so I'm happy to do it anytime. Awesome. Thanks, Terry. We'll see you. We'll actually get you back on again in about 12 weeks, so let's do this again. Okay, right, for sure. See you soon.